Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Ted Martell, a co-founder and principal at Maverick Real Estate Partners, a firm he started in 2010 with his partner, David Aviram. Maverick is a real estate private equity fund manager that invests in commercial real estate credit in New York City. Since their founding in 2010, Maverick has invested $730 million across 130 loans. They have developed and deployed proprietary algorithms that convert data into actionable intelligence, uncovering hidden opportunities, pricing risk, and optimizing decision-making. In our conversation, we talk about the founding story of Maverick and the painstaking efforts that Ted and David went through to get their initial set of data, the current state of debt markets in New York City, and what may happen with the Signature Bank loan portfolio, and why a focus on a singular market and strategy has been fundamental to Maverick's success. This conversation was recorded in June of 2023. I enjoyed the conversation with Ted and learning more about how a local sharpshooter like Maverick has scaled their business and found success both on the deal side and by raising capital from some of the smartest and most sophisticated institutional investors in the market. Let's get into it. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, Brandon, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me today. Let's dive into it. Can you start by introducing yourself a little bit and tell us, you know, the the story behind Maverick and what you all do at Maverick? Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today, Brandon. I appreciate uh, you having the space for me. I am co-founder of Maverick Real Estate Partners. I have one partner, David Avram. We are 50-50 partners. We started this business about 2010 on the heels of the global financial crisis. We buy non-performing loans secured by real estate in New York City. So we're very targeted uh, in what we're investing in, and we're very targeted in where we are investing. In other words, where the collateral is located for the loans that we are buying. We're buying those loans with the goal of being repaid. So these are loans that are not performing that we're acquiring from both private lenders and banks. And what were you doing before you started Maverick? How did you decide to get into this space? It's a great question. You know, my background is quite different than David's. Dave and I met in 2004 at Columbia Business School, where we became friends and both were sort of cut from the same entrepreneurial cloth, always wanted to start our own business. But before we actually started Maverick in 2010, I worked in the real estate development construction business. So I was managing large projects for developers, mostly here in New York City, building ground up projects, condominiums. I did a hotel project in Miami Beach. And, you know, as the global financial crisis hit in 08, there wasn't a tremendous opportunity to do real estate development. There was no credit available. 
I was spending a lot of time underwriting deals that were never going to be built. And Dave reached out to me and said, hey, Ted, you know, now's the time. Let's let's take the jump that we've always wanted to. There's got to be opportunity out there. We'll figure it out. Dave, post-business school, had been working at East Hill Secure, doing real estate investment sales and investment banking. And so he was really building some depth around his underwriting skills and selling large buildings uh, here in the city. My experience was much more tailored towards projects, specific projects on buildings, and so much more sort of directly asset-based. So in 2010, I think it was February, we had left our respective jobs and we got some office space and had to figure out what we wanted to do. And we wanted to find out first where the opportunity was, which was unclear. When you walked around the city in 2010, you know, we're now two years into the global financial crisis and there are broken projects everywhere. It's obvious that there's problems all over the place. And so we figured that the problems had to be with the banks, with the lenders. And so we started just cold calling lenders. And what we heard initially was, we don't have any troubled loans. We don't have any problems. And it didn't make any sense to us because there were broken projects everywhere. And so we said to ourselves, there's got to be another way to figure out where the broken projects are. And that sort of sent us on the hunt, you know, to sort of build out some data. We started just simply forming lists, lists of banks, lists of private lenders. We started finding some publicly available evidence of distress, lists of list pendants. And we got lucky in the first year and got a few inroads at banks who wanted us to come in and take a look at their loans that were troubled. You know, we were a fundless sponsor at the time. Neither Dave or I come from a lot of money. We didn't have capital. So we were also courting private equity funds at the same time, trying to pair together the deals with the money. So we're telling the banks that we have money. You know, we're, we're, we're telling the, the private equity funds that we have deals. And we're hustling to try to put those two together and make things happen. And in the first year, we got our first deal done. $6 million land loan secured by property in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was a great opportunity for us because we found a private equity fund to work with us who generously funded our portion of the capital to start and gave us time to raise capital from friends and family thereafter, which allowed us to focus on doing what was really important, which was deep due diligence on the, on the investment. What was great about that opportunity was that we got repaid in about four months. We made some money and we were in business. We had a proven business model. We made that money by paying nearly par for the loan and then accruing default interest at a very high rate. It was a 24% default rate loan. And the borrower paid us back through another party very quickly, generating a significant amount of income for us, which really allowed us to catch our breath. We'd been in business about a year. We had identified a lot of opportunities. We'd come close in a few. But that was really our first opportunity that we closed and made some money. Along the way, my wife was expecting our first child, my son, who's now 12 years old. So I had a window of time to be successful. Otherwise, I was going to be the nanny. And after we closed that first deal, that's exactly what I became for three months. And that was just a matter of having enough means to support ourselves. You know, fortunately, both Dave and I, our, our wives are intelligent, and well-educated people with great jobs. And they were able to support us during the early days of Maverick. And so we got paid off, made some money. I hired a nanny and we got back to work. Not that Dave wasn't working during those time periods. And Dave's always been, you know, a, a great partner to work with and that he's, you know, sort of very supportive and understanding about the complications of life and sort of growing this business together. We've seen, seen our share. But what was exciting, you know, about that is that now we had some money. There was still distress. We knew what a deal looked like. We knew who was interested in doing some of these deals. And we set about finding more. And that's Four months later, we closed our next opportunity, which was a hotel under construction in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. 
And what was really fascinating about that deal was that sandwich in the middle of the capital stack was a mechanics lien. Mechanics lien, you know, if you're not aware, is a claim by a contractor for work that they performed on the property and weren't paid. And with a construction loan that's funded in tranches, if a mechanics lien is filed by a contractor or, or other groups that are allowed to file mechanics liens, architects, engineers, and in some cases, brokers, it has its place in line. In other words, it sits right after the last funded tranche of the loan or the last traditional loan. And then the bank proceeded to distribute more funds for additional advance requests from the contractor. So that mechanics lien was sitting there sandwiched in the middle of the capital stack. And when we bought the loan, we, un- we assumed we'd have to pay in full. It was about a million dollars and it was well secured. We, uh, we paid just about par for the loan at the time. And we thought the property was worth nearly $20 million. I think it was about a 12 or $13 million acquisition. And we assumed we'd have to pay it off in full. But what was more interesting to us than anything was that the mechanics lien had been recorded on that property for over 12 months prior to the loan actually being in distress. We'd found the opportunity just from cold calling a bank. It's a bank that's no longer around today, closed during the uh, GFC. And they sort of let us in to sort of get us our opinion, get our opinion of value. We thought to ourselves, well, if this was on the property for 12 months before, perhaps there's other situations like this. How do we find all of the mechanics liens on all of the properties in the city of New York. And how do we use that as a lead list to identify new opportunities? Hmm. That's fascinating. We're going to come back to some of the advanced kind of data and analytics tools that you all have been using since the beginning. Before we go there, you started the business in 2010 with you and David. How big are you today? Kind of what are the metrics that you share publicly about Maverick just to help our audience orient themselves in terms of size and scale? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a little more history on it too. For the first five years, it just remained Dave and I, just the two of us in an office, just hustling, working away. Today, we're 20 people total and looking to hire a few more. We haven't closed on opportunities lately, but we've been seeing a lot and we're having a lot of fun. We've been back in the office for about two years full time, although I'll tell you that Dave actually never left. He was in here while I was at home hustling from there. That's awesome. That's great. And, and 100% New York focus, correct? New York City focused, I should say. 100% New York focused, New York City focused. We do have some ability, some flexibility within our funds to go a little further afield. The truth is, is that we've found that there are other reasons to stay here and stay more focused in New York City. Great. So let's talk about the current debt markets or credit markets. You mentioned you started the company in 2010 when things looked, at least based on your description and my recollection, a lot like they do today. You know, Maybe I'm off by a few quarters, but but not entirely dissimilar. Where do you think we are in this kind of market cycle, the distress cycle specifically? And, you know, how are you focusing your energy at Maverick to find, you know, opportunities in the current market? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I do think today's market is quite different, you know, than 2010. I think there are some things that are similar, but obviously one of the big differences is the rising interest rates, right? Which are putting really significant stress on the situation. If you look back at the GFC, the Fed was able to drop rates, which help borrowers out significantly to, you know, repay loans and for investments to happen. In terms of where we sit in the cycle today, uh, you know, I think it's very early innings. We have not closed on a new investment opportunity since November of last year. That's very rare for Maverick. We historically are closing three to four deals a month and have been doing that pretty regularly for five or six years. So for things to be that frozen is relatively remarkable. We published some data recently on the lending market, uh, on the credit market in New York City, and it's basically ground to a halt. You know, what used to be 
leading up before the rate hike started to 2,500 loans being originated per quarter in New York City is now down to 1,000 or less. So we're below 50% in terms of lending volume in New York City, which is unbelievable. And that's both banks and private lenders. And so there's been really significant decrease in the amount, amount of credit available, and there's just no transactions happening right now. So, you know, the question as to where we're seeing deals, we're seeing deals where, you know, things can be structured and it's really different than anything we've seen before. We're sort of thinking about them in two buckets. We're thinking about them as sort of consensual deals and then non-consensual deals. Non-consensual deals would be your typical debt acquisition or non-performing loan acquisition, which is Maverick's bread and butter. It's what we've been doing for, you know, 13 years. When we talk about consensual deals, we're talking about originations, right? The opportunity to originate mezzanine debt on properties where there's going to need to be some gaps filled because the property is no longer worth what it was and the borrower is going to need some additional capital. That's interesting. We're also seeing opportunity within the private lender space to provide some rescue capital. So private lenders, as you well know, have been generating outsized returns, often by using leverage for the past 10 plus years. Those warehouse line providers, which are generally banks, are you know putting pressure on the private lenders to repay those lines where there's problems. And we've actually had some inbounds from private lenders saying, "Hey, Maverick, you know we've sold you deals before. Would you take a look at this? Would you consider taking on the A note or our warehouse line in this position?" You know those warehouse lines generally were fifty to sixty percent of you know what those lenders thought their loan you know LTVs were. And so they were very safe positions. We've seen situations today where we don't even think those are at a discount enough to the collateral to make sense. But we do like the idea of coming in to provide some rescue capital from a protected position where we can generate an outsized return. Another place where we've seen opportunity is when we have banks who want to sell loans, ask us for you know what we think it might be worth. We take a look. Uh, we give them an offer that they're not sort of interested in. But perhaps we've transacted with them before, or perhaps they know we're a credible counterparty and sort of the foremost debt buyers in New York City. We're talking to a couple of banks about buying loans where we'll invest a nominal amount of money, and then that money will be subject to some sort of waterfall. So an example of that would be a $30 million loan, which maybe we wanted to buy it for, say, $20 million or something like that. But the bank wasn't willing to sell or take the hit on their balance sheet at this time. What we're talking about doing is investing, say, a nominal amount relative to the deal, say $5 million, in some sort of preferred capital treatment where we get our money back first, we get some sort of preference or preferred return on top of that capital, and then there's some sort of split or series of splits over a bunch of different hurdles. That way, we're aligned with the bank, we're getting our money out, and you know we're sort of all trying to do the best that we can should things go in a, a really positive direction for the real estate markets. You know, the bank can do, you know, really well. Also, you know, the banks recognize that we're uniquely tailored to do this type of work and, you know, we're happy to do it. We do like to have some skin in the game and we do want to invest our funds as well. But that's a structure that I can imagine happening more. So at the present, we're sort of seeing these consensual deals where multiple parties are agreeing about some structure or a way of putting something together to solve a problem. I think, you know, as banks and private lenders start to take their medicine and start to mark their positions, and, uh, you know, there's a number of catalysts that may cause that to happen, that'll eventually turn into, you know, non-performing loan sales. And we saw this when we started our business in 2010. The global financial crisis started in 2008. And, you know, two years later, when we started our business, there were still a tremendous amount of broken deals 
available. And those went on from when we started in 2010 through into 2013. So there were several years of runway after that. I can imagine a scenario in the present market that the non-performing loan market is much bigger simply because of this interest rate problem. And and I think when Dave and I talk about it or think about it, we see this as sort of a once in a career opportunity, the present environment. And, you know, we're we're generally excited about that because, you know, for our core business of buying non-performing loans, you know, it's just be tons of supply. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, in, in many regards, you know, New York is the epicenter of the world's financial markets and real estate. And we see these headlines about New York-based developers distressed. Yet what you shared with us just now is that, you know, the market's still stuck. And, you know, interest rates are one of the reasons why, you know, we're at this bid-ask spread. But what are you looking at, you know, as early indicators to figure out kind of what's going to unstick the market? Is it just a function of time and everything working through the process? Or are there other things that might be happening kind of at ground level that are going to help us get unstuck so the banks start to you know, the, the, the borrowers in the bank start to have these productive discussions and transactions happen. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, the system has to move, right? It can't stay frozen. It can't stay stuck. Uh, it just doesn't work. It won't be a system. And there'll be sort of much bigger failures and problems in the economy. So the question is, what are the catalysts that are going to get it moving again? You know, I think there's a few different things that we see, though we can't be for sure what, what they will be. One is the bank regulators, Right. We've seen, you know, what, three or four banks fail already uh, in this cycle. And I believe that that's, we're talking about, you know, SVB, Signature and First Republic, and collectively they're two, three, and four of the largest bank failures ever in this country. And I think that, you know, a lot of people turned and said, hey, regulators, like, why didn't you catch this? Why didn't you see this? Well, I, I see that as emboldening the regulators or perhaps giving their voice a little more volume in the system. And I think that the regulators are going to put pressures, put pressure, excuse me, on banks to face reality and remark some of their loan positions, which should then encourage some sales, right? Because once the positions are marked down, the value destruction sort of recognized, it's best off for the bank to get liquid in order to, again, go about their business of making loans. So I think regulators are a big piece on the banking side. On the private lending side, I alluded to it before with the potential exits for private lenders, but I think it's their leverage providers. The leverage providers aren't going to hang around forever. The leverage providers are also often banks. We're going to have their own regulators putting pressure on them. And I think them pushing the private lenders to, you know, resolve their loans or sell their loans is going to force, you know, some some activity. And I think those two things could be some primary drivers. Another, uh, I mean, huge driver could be the signature loan portfolio, which is now portfolio of loans owned by the FDIC. But the commercial real estate loan portfolio of signatures is $34 billion. The FDIC has indicated that they're planning to sell it. They've hired Newmark to do so. This will be the biggest loan sale, commercial real estate ever. Of the $34 billion, $24 billion, $23 billion or so is based in New York City. That's a tremendous amount of loans that will sell. $11 billion of those loans are rent-stabilized properties. They're going to be selling these properties over the next you know, few months, or these loans rather, and they're going to be competitively bid by very sophisticated groups. That ought to serve as a mechanism to reset pricing. And I, I got to imagine that as a bank or a private lender facing a regulator or an investor or a warehouse line provider, when you point to those sales and, and ensuing transactions, that it's going to be hard not to mark down your positions and acknowledge what they are actually worth. 
So I think that the, you know, the sale of that loan portfolio could have a really big, you know, effect on the market. You know, we didn't talk about it before, but as much as credit, you know, it's, it's frozen in New York. I mean, the, the absence of one of the biggest lenders, Signature Bank, is a huge piece of that, right? These were one of the go-to lenders in New York City. It's no longer there. It's gone. And so I think some of those things could force, you know, could, could provide some, some people to, to get in motion. So if you had your crystal ball and we're recording this on June 20th of 2023, when do you think we will start to see transactions on that signature bank portfolio? You know, that's a great question. Uh, We've had conversations with the brokers recently. We think Maverick has a place involving this transaction. Uh, We think we bring really significant data expertise and foreclosure expertise, underwriting expertise to the situation. So we've been sort of keeping tabs on it. You know, every... You know, every few weeks we hear, oh, it's coming out in a few weeks. Every few weeks it's coming out in a few weeks. And so far it hasn't come out. So I think we'll see it when the FDIC says put it out on the market. You know, I think everybody's eager to see it from the you know buying side, but also from you know, the brokerage side. Uh, you know, and so I think, you know, I think they recently just sold the VC portfolio, which was about $600 million, I believe. It's not something we would look at, so I didn't really track it. There's a handful uh, more stuff to sell, $34 billion plus dollars worth of loans, you know, and we're being told later this summer, you know, it's funny if you ask around in the market, everyone has a, a real answer for you. Oh, it's coming out in two weeks. But I'm not sure that that's accurate. I think we'll know when we know. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to predict like everybody else. That, that's fair. That's fair. You mentioned it's part of the portfolio's rent regulated. Is that something that you all will look at or how, how does that play out from a, you know, an underwriting perspective relative to the non-rent regulated uh, components of the portfolio? Yeah, it's a great question. $11 billion of rent stabilized apartment buildings, you know, in New York City. The scale of that is absolutely tremendous. These are places, you know, where people live and as we understand it, you know, that is a big part of the concern that uh, the quality of housing, the availability of housing will be disrupted for these people. And, you know, the FDIC has a mandate not just to achieve the highest price, but also to preserve housing. And in this particular instance, those things are a little bit opposed. So I think there's tremendous challenge in selling this because of the dollars needed, right? $11 billion. There's only so many groups that can close on a transaction like that, even with FDIC financing on both sides, both at the portfolio side, as well as at the investor's level. You know, we've heard stories or rumors that there's a series of nonprofits that want to be involved, or that they're trying to involve, that could be helpful to make sure that the, you know, that, that the tenants are well protected. You know, I think there's some good sense in, in all of that. How it results in a transaction is, is very complex, right? And how, uh, you know, say an investor is supposed to maximize returns as a fiduciary to their LPs is at the same time supposed to be concerned on the other side. Meanwhile, you know, as a lender, you don't own the property, right? You're the lender. The property owner owns a property. But these properties, you know, they have sig- significant capex that's needed, right? It's been delayed. Money's not being put in. There's a lot of uncertainty around these properties and these loans today. So I'm sure 
that some owners are not doing a good job of taking care of those properties as is. And I would bet that the longer this goes, the more of those loans go into default, which is a more complicated situation to resolve. So, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, work to do there. You asked me about, you know, underwriting this stuff. You know, I think, you know, the rent stabilized stuff alone is difficult. We'll see what the data tape looks like. You know, that's, that's not been put out, you know, by the broker or anybody else. Uh, at present for the rent stabilized or any of the commercial real estate loans. You know, we, we've built our own here at Maverick, just using our data and have started building our own models uh, and, and analyzing the portfolio with the idea being that we'll be able to swap in their data tape or, or, or even just attach it to our data tape because we believe we'll have certain data points that are superior. But, you know, you're really looking at, you know, what those rents look like. The growth is capped. The expenses are climbing significantly, right? There's inflationary pressure there. Things like fuel, insurance is climbing. And we'll get to some sort of, you know, valuation on the collateral. And then you have to assume, you know, some sort of default rate on those loans, them going bad, and run them through, you know, what we do, at least we underwrite, is run them through a probability-weighted scenario analysis, you know, where some are getting resolved quickly, some are going sort of medium, and some are going long, and get to some sort of return profile, that is worth, you know, all the risk that's involved there. So, you know, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but it's complicated and there's a lot of information missing still. And the last question on the signature bank topic, a transaction of that size and scale, would that typically transact to a single buyer of the whole portfolio or will, you know, is there a possibility that it'll get divided up? into multiple buyers, depending on, you know, the asset class or the the profile of the underlying security? What we've heard is that they're going to split it up into, you know, chunks. You know, a simple way of doing that would be, you know, free market, rent stabilized. Other ways of doing it would be sort of loan sizes and asset types, right? You could do uh, split up the retail from, say, the multifamily, from the rent stabilized, et cetera. And so um, our understanding is that they're going to split it up in some sort of buckets, and then you'll be able to bid in parts on it and in whole, you know, and I think that they're going to try to sell it for as much money as they can. I think there's a complication around the rent stabilized stuff that they're going to factor in some other aspects of the buyer's profile and the buyer's team. And I think that it all could go to one buyer, provided that the FDIC is providing really significant financing. We understand that they're sort of willing to finance both the overall portfolio acquisition as well as the piece, the investment piece by the actual investor. And so that sort of makes it a little more possible for it to go to one group. But, you know, we'll see. I think I, 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 until they break it up, I think it's hard. It's hard to predict how it sells. I mean, there's only, you know, a handful of groups that can actually really bid on uh, loan portfolios that are, that are this large. We are obviously interested. But, you know, as I mentioned, my six fund is $317 million. I've got about $150 million in dry powder that doesn't really move the needle on a $34 billion loan portfolio. So we're a participant. We think we provide information advantage. We think we have execution advantage just by our sheer experience. But, you know, there's, you know, this is the Apollos, the Blackstones, the Starwoods of the world who are going to play in this. I think ultimately, even if it did go to one group, you know, it would be split up subsequently uh, along the way or things would be sold off in, in, in different parts and pieces. So you mentioned the information advantage. Let's talk a little bit about kind of how you use analytics and data to help inform, you know, the way that you identify and underwrite investments. I know that, you know, you know, you, you've kind of, 
you've highlighted to me in the past that it started off a long, long time ago and very manually, but maybe kind of tell us the story of how this all began and, you know, the evolution of your kind of data-driven investment approach. I mean, we started going there a little bit, you know, in the beginning of the conversation around this mechanics lien, the second deal we did. And so I'm just going to go back to that for a minute. We really saw this mechanics lien as a potential lead generation opportunity. And so we asked ourselves, where can we find all the mechanics liens recorded in New York City? This is 2010, and today it's very different. But back then, the only way to get a list of mechanics liens was to go down to the county clerk's office underneath the courthouse from the basement of the courthouse. And they have a green screen computer. And you would sit or you could you could sort the list and then you could poke through them one at a time, one per page, and there was a print screen button. And you'd hit that print screen button and it would go to the printer printout. It was a shame because it's a real waste of paper too. One page, one mechanics lien, about this much text, not very much information. The block and lot, dollar amount, the lien or. And we sat down there for weeks on end, printing out every single one over hundred thousand dollars in New York City. And we did Manhattan first, and then we worked on Brooklyn and Queens. And we kind of went from there. But every time we finished a borough, we would scan all of these one-pagers and send them to a firm that was based in India that actually entered them into a spreadsheet. And that produced our first sort of database of leads, right? We took this mechanics lien list and went through one property at a time, looked on the public record to figure out who was the lender on the property. And we said, hey, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Lender, we see this mechanics lien filed on this property. We're interested in buying your loan. And that received mixed reviews. Sometimes they told us to go away. Sometimes they were like, thank you, that's helpful information we didn't know. And, and sometimes they say, yeah, no, that's not a problem. I'm aware of it. But hey, why don't you check out this other opportunity that we have for sale? And so through that sort of process, we had a means of reaching out to people and talking to them about something real, not saying, hey, what do you have for sale? That's the stress. Nobody wants to air their dirty laundry. And we learned that really early on. Fast forward to today. And we've now built like a really sophisticated data-driven sourcing machine. We call it effectively in-house the deal machine. It's got a web-based interface that you can sort of query the data, but the data is really comprised of many different other publicly available data sources. And it really comes down to three categories. There's court filings, right, which include foreclosure, general litigation, bankruptcy filings. Then you have title records. These are about properties, which include deeds, loans, any other types of encumbrances. And then you have what we call, you know, agency data, which are really like property taxes, water and sewer bills, DOB permits, rent regulation information, corporate filings. And what we've done with all these different databases is to connect them. But what's interesting about that, and this is why this is so hard, is that this data is filthy from a data perspective. First of all, it's all manually entered by clerks, by humans who make errors, right? Second, they're all using different systems, right? And they're, some of them are last name, comma, first name, for example. Others of them have the word junior or Roman numeral three after the name. You know, sometimes there's just a spelling error. And so the first thing you have to do with any database that you want to ingest is to clean it. And you've got to clean it in a way that makes it the same format as the others. So we get some files, like the court, the New York State court data comes in one single text file. You've got to take that single text file and put it into some sort of structured database so that you can actually use the information, right? And so what you do, once you have all these databases clean, we've been building this for 10 years, so it's a work in progress, but what we have now works really well. You're connecting these different databases and you're connecting them through like fields. Those could be a person's name, a property address, 
a building identification number, which is the system that the DOB uses, a phone number, or many other things. And what you end up with is basically this very complicated three-dimensional database that you can query it looking for what we refer to as instances or evidence of distress. And with that, my team has a lead list of warm leads to reach out to banks and private lenders on a regular basis and seek you know, opportunity or situations where those lenders might want to sell their loans. So today, just to clarify for kind of all of us who like clean data out there, this is, this is coming in single, you, you mentioned the foreclosure, the title record and the agency data is coming. Each, each one of those categories comes from a single source of truth or within those categories, there's multiple sources of truth that still need to be cleaned, cleansed before they get married across the different you know, types of data sets that you're, you're aggregating. All come from different groups, right? And, and, and it depends. Some of this data is coming at the federal level, right? Some of it's coming at the state, some of it's coming at the county, and some of it's coming at the city level, right? And so if I'm collecting county data, I've got to go to each county and pull that data. That will come in different forms due to different customs that those counties have developed. And this is all just New York City, right? And New York, you know, since the Bloomberg errors has made an amazing effort to develop their data and to be transparent with their data. But there's still a lot of work to be done to sort of make it all uh, aligned or similar or clean. So, yeah, they're all different, coming in different shapes and sizes with different organizations. But the good news is once you clean it, you know, you have it, right? And then on the go forward, you set up algorithms that are helping you clean it, right? And we now have, you know, the vast majority of this data being piped directly into Maverick. And so it's coming in live. It's organized and kept in our data warehouse, and as we make improvements to it over time, it only becomes more accretive to the overall system. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And is that somebody's job or how many people work on kind of your, you know, if you think of a traditional real estate organization where you have acquisitions professionals and development professionals and asset managers and capital raisers, what is, what does that operation look like from a, you know, data and analytics perspective, the, the guts of what you're doing? So today that is the data strategy department. That is three employees at present at Maverick, and we're looking to hire one more. And they are sort of managing all of that information and data here in-house. Over the years, it started with Dave and I managing really bad Excel spreadsheets, throwing them out and starting over. At some point, we pivoted to, I believe it was Microsoft Access. I don't even know if that product exists anymore, which is supposed to allow for more complicated or sophisticated spreadsheets. And then over time, we outsourced it to a series of partners we were, you know, we realized we had sort of reached our limit in terms of managing and cleaning data. It's really complicated. And we were trying to build something bigger than of the moment. We wanted something that was lasting and working into the future. And so started working with a few third parties. But the past, you know, 18 months, there, there's been tremendous effort to bring it all in-house as we see it really as our true competitive advantage here at Maverick. So speaking of that competitive advantage, let's talk about capital raising, you know, for, for a moment as you think about, you know, how you position, you know, cre- credit is extremely in vogue right now and you've been doing it since it wasn't in vogue, but everybody has a new credit vehicle that they're bringing to market and there's a lot of competition for the limited investor dollars that are available to be allocated in this market and we don't need to go into the whole denominator effect. But when you're talking to investors today about credit, how are you, you know, how, what, what's the sense? I mean, it's, it's kind of always debated. Is it fixed income? Is it real estate? Where's the allocation sit? What are you seeing, you know, from your investors and then more broadly as you talk to the market? You know, it's a great question. I just came 
from one of our pension fund investors office, just sort of having an update meeting with them, you know, which is so great because we were able to be there in person with them and talk about it. And they had in the room at the table, I think it was nine people, which was great and generous of them to give us all that much time and focus. But I tell you that because they had their real estate people there. They had their fixed income people there. They have like a bucket that's kind of more like a special situations group there. And and we actually asked them, like, should should we be, and we've had a good relationship with these guys for a long time, you know, should we be actively selling ourselves to a particular bucket? You know, everyone looks at Maverick Real Estate Partners and says, oh, real estate, right, just because of our name. You know, but the profile of our return, you know, and, and the idiosyncratic nature of our return often suggests that it should be somewhere else. Now, this particular group has us in their fixed income group. We hear a lot of people putting us in their hedge fund bucket. You know, we've got LPs that put us in their real estate bucket. And 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 we're saying to this particular LP, like, is this something we should talk about? Should we care about it? And their feedback was, every LP is going to be a little bit different in terms of how they think about you. Every LP is going to have a little more room or availability in a different bucket at a different time. And we said, well, what, are we going to stay in fixed income with you guys? What do you think? And they said, well, you're here and you're not moving. So I, I, that doesn't really answer your question. It's something that we've that we've been thinking about for years because even we've considered changing our name because we thought it might be a disadvantage. Yes, we have real estate at our base. It's very hard to say what bucket we belong in for 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 what for what group. And so, you know, that that was sort of the most sound advice I've heard is stop worrying about it and just you know make sure you're trying to talk to as many people as possible. Yeah, I think I think that's fair advice. I think it also, you know, from a GP's perspective, and I'm saying this, not you, it it also is faced with the real constraint that there's only so many hours in the day that you can spend in, you know, raising money versus investing money. And it wouldn't it be nice if you knew where the money was coming from. But I guess the answer is, you know, it, that's not knowable right now. And that's probably a byproduct of how the allocators are evolving their own thinking around real estate, which, you know, a decade ago wasn't really a you know, part of the, the the traditional kind of allocation and it's been ratcheting up and up and up over the last, you know, decade and a half or so. So I think it's it's interesting and, and understandable, but I think instructive. Yeah, I think, look, in terms of our fundraising process, we've always done it internally. Uh, it's just been Dave and I. And truth be told, if you look at our investor base, which is about 80% institutional at this point in time, Every one of them came through an introduction from a prior investor. And, and we're very grateful to our limited partners for doing that. They've interested to really high quality LPs. And I'm sure that there are some interesting conversations amongst those groups when they're talking about, well, what, what bucket do you have these guys in? Where do they belong? You know, and, and how that works. And I'm thankful for the, for, for the introductions that we've had and the ability to, you know, to, to do that. What is the most common question you get from investors about your funds, given that you're probably needing to respond to and address a very wide range of levels of sophistication. Some might understand fixed income really well, but not really fully grasp real estate. Some might be real estate experts, but are learning about credit. Like what, what is, you know, what are some of the more common questions that you get asked? One of the most common questions I would say historically that, that we receive is, uh, can you scale this nationally? Because uh, we've sort of proven this business model out in New York City in such a successful way. And, you know, certainly it's something that we've talked about in, inside here at Maverick. But in our third fund, I think we were able to go out to New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania, a little further afield from New York City, right? And that was a small fund. It was only $30 million. We sort of grew this really, really carefully and, and, and slowly. 
And we just found those markets are so different. New York City has its information advantage. It has this you know, liquidity as far as real estate concerned. It's one of the most liquid real estate markets in the world, you know, even today, even in the current environment. You know, when, when you go to sell a property, multiple buyers will go non-contingent, all cash, quick close. You just don't see that anywhere else. You know, you end up with a property in Connecticut, you might be at, you know, 20% of the value. It might take you a year to find the the, uh, the buyer. And uh, meanwhile, you're paying high taxes, the property's vacant, all sorts of carrying costs, and you're sort of in a terrible negotiating position. So, you know, New York City's market is huge. Real estate credit is you know, prior to this, you know, past 12 months, something like $130 billion of loans originated a year, right? It's tremendous. And so for a relatively small fund, you know, $317 million compared to that scale of numbers, we're very happy to stay here in New York. That being said, you know, at some point in five years, 10 years, long-term, I don't know, as we perfect what we're doing here, it is intriguing to try to rebuild a model elsewhere. I would guess that those would be other dense cities where they have data and where, uh, you know, the, the, the laws are, are similar, at least in some respects, New York. So I would say that's like the most common question, you know, that, that we hear or have heard at the end of our meeting today with the LP. They said, so, so why are you here? What are you selling to us? We said, you know, it's just, it's an update call. And if some of these catalysts kick into gear, and loan sales start happening quickly, or we get a bunch of these consensual type deals done, we'll burn through that relatively quickly. And given that some LPs are, you know, having their own challenges right now on the denominator effect and other things, we want to know, you know, that the capital is, is out there you know, when we're ready and also give our LPs the time they need to act and, and respond. And so we have been hearing that a lot. When are you raising fund seven or what are you selling me here? But, you know, I thought I'd throw that in there because I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it is interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of planning that needs to take place from a portfolio allocation on the on the side of LPs in conjunction with their consultants if they have them. So that's a that's a fair comment. Let's let's spend a minute talking about, you know, the New York City market. I mentioned it earlier. There's a ton of headlines that we all read about you know, owner X or developer Y defaulting or giving back the keys. We, you know, hear the debate about, you know, return to office or not return to office and, you know, who's winning. But as you sit there as a credit investor focused in New York City, how do you assess the fundamentals of what's happening right now, you know, in the summer of 2023 on the ground? Or does it actually not matter for what you're doing? I mean, I imagine it matters. You don't want to be a long-term owner, but like, how do you think about, like, what would you tell somebody who's not in New York, who's reading all the same headlines that I read sitting in California about the New York market as somebody who's only focused on that market? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think I, I, a couple things to say about that. Number one, when when we're sourcing these opportunities, we don't we're not asset particular. We're not looking for a particular asset type. We're looking for you know evidence of distress, places where we can get involved at a at a very low LTV, right? So at a significant discount to value, particularly in this type of uncertain market where the V is so uncertain, and so we start there and then work our way through it. That being said. You know, just based on what we're seeing, we do have thoughts and ideas about what's happening within the market, and we are seeing it on our own investments in the portfolio, right? On the office side, you know, are we coming back to office or not? I, 
You know, I, I don't think that's a fully answerable question. I, I, I think things will change. I can tell you on the ground, I ride the train in every day from the suburbs and it's getting busier <laughs> and it has been for 12 months. There are more people here. When I got to my office this morning and we're here right in Midtown near Grand Central, I had to wait in a line to get on my elevator. That hasn't happened since before COVID. That was a new one today. And so there is more action in terms of uh, bodies on the ground. I'll also tell you that our lease is coming up on this office where we're at now and we need bigger space. And so we've been out in the market looking at looking at offices and everyone says it, there's class A and then there's class everything else. And that's kind of true. The class A stuff is holding its own. It's occupied. We toured one Vanderbilt. It was an amazing building. They want $230 a square foot. It's a huge number. Other class A stuff, that's like class A plus. Other class A stuff is sort of more in that like $90 a foot range. That gives you a little perspective that like the premium stuff is still doing really well. You know, class B and C, it's a huge question mark. That stuff, a lot of it's outdated. Some of it will probably get reused. Everyone loves to talk about converting it, you know, to multifamily. You read all these articles about it, but there's a couple complications there. One that you read about a lot is, well, the floor plate doesn't work, or you have to cut off the back half of the building to, to make it work. Some of that's true, but you still end up with kind of like old stuff, low ceiling heights, you know, bad windows, all sorts of things that possibly just mean you'd be better off just buying the land or demolishing the whole thing and starting over. But there's a whole political component there related to office around affordable housing, you know, and, and that sort of takes you back to where we were with the signature stuff. And you have an asset that has a value challenge, and now you want to impose things on it that are going to create more value challenges, right? It's not really solving uh, your problem. And, and that's not like, I don't, uh, you know, building more housing is, is good. We have housing shortage in New York. It's true. But, you know, I, you, you have to have solutions that, that actually work. When they did the downtown New York City office rezoning, there wasn't an affordable component and they converted quite a bit of that space to, to residential to housing. So, you know, I think office space is fascinating. We don't have any in the portfolio at the moment. We've done a few here and there. You know, you do see big guys, that, you know, the RXRs and, and the like, turning the keys in to their lenders. And, and, and it's scary. I think that, you know, value needs to reset. I think, you know, expectations need to reset. I, I still believe in New York. I think people are still going to want to work here. I think that's evidenced by what you're seeing on the multifamily side, where residential rents are through the roof. Uh, they continue to climb. You know, and this is what the affordable housing, you know, groups are worried about, right? And I, and I understand that because there's there's a whole segment uh, of society that, that, that that's really challenging for. But in terms of an asset class, it's it's doing really well. People want to be in New York. You know, we hire a lot of young people right out of college. They're excited to be here and working in New York and be part of this, especially coming out of COVID. It's great to be back in the city and see it alive. You know, on the hospitality front, you know, that's a pretty interesting environment. It's really a sort of supply side story. You know, there were some new regulations put in place in New York City almost two years ago that require you to get a special permit to build a hotel. And most everybody believes that the result of that special permit will be that you are obligated to use union labor to run that hotel after completion. Different views on that, but mostly that it's more expensive. And most people don't think you can underwrite a hotel, a ground of construction to your city that's run union. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of concerns around building new hotels to put in perspective since that regulation was put in place. There have been zero new permits pulled on hotels. So no hotels coming to the market anytime soon in New York City. In addition, 
a bunch of the stock has been demolished for a variety of reasons over the, the past few years. So a lot of keys have been taken offline. And now we also have, you know, sort of this migrant housing crisis where we're putting the city signing deals with hotel owners to pay a, a guaranteed rate, uh, 365 days a year, to house the, the migrant population that, that is coming to the city. And that's taking more, you know, more keys offline. So on the hotel side, you're seeing this diminished supply and that's driving ADR, you know, through the roof. And, you know, in talking to the brokerage community, that's a trend that they expect to keep climbing, you know, over the next few years. It's also partially driven by, you know, sort of increased tourism, which people want to get back out and be in the city. You know, then you have industrial and that's, you know, there's it's short supply here in New York. It's, it's doing really well. I'd expect that to continue. And then, you know, sort of what we have, which is really just sort of this, this credit side of the business. We think the supply of those opportunities can be ample for all the reasons we've talked about. So in closing, as we look at, you know, the next, I was going to say three to five years, but I don't think we can look that far out. Maybe we'll look three to six months. What are some of the kind of, you know, we talked about the signature bank portfolio coming to market, which will be, you know, critical to hopefully unstick the market. What are some of the other leading indicators that you're focused on, you know, whether it be the forward yield curve or like, what are the data, what are you consuming right now to be prepared to strike when the opportunity presents itself? Yeah, look, I think, you know, from the day to day, our sourcing team is really using these sort of leading indicators of distress that we've developed over time. And they're on the phone with bankers and brokers and looking for sort of distressed opportunities that we can participate in. I'm looking for banks and private lenders to start selling things at discounts. I think they have to trade at discounts. I think if we see that sort of start to happen, you're going to start to see things move. I think the sale of that signature portfolio is going to be really meaningful. I think that's going to be, you know, hopefully by the end of this year that that gets done. And I think once you see a trade of that scale, it's going to have a significant impact on this market. You know, in the meantime, things are changing, you know, every day. And we're sort of watching, you know, everything, you know, as closely as we can to try to be as informed as we can and really continue just sort of making, you know, opportunistic investments from this sort of credit protected position. Awesome. I love that. Ted, a lot of our listeners often want to know how they can connect with guests on the show. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Is it through the website, email, LinkedIn? What do you prefer? Any which way is fine. You can go right through our website. There's sort of a general email address on there. Happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to meet with people and talk to people all the time. You know, we're, we're, we're looking to learn. We're looking to collaborate and grow and sort of very open-minded in achieving all of those goals. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today to share some of your insights and perspective on what's happening in the market. I think we're at really interesting time, uh, an inflection point in our industry. And as you said, this time is similar yet very different with the rising interest rates to what we saw during the GFC. And I think the next, you know, three to twelve months are going to be really interesting. And you know, the opportunity to hear from you is is super insightful. And I appreciate you sharing your insights. So thank you everybody for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.